Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good morning. My name is Arnold, and I'm an alcoholic. It is a pleasure to have spent the weekend with all of you. Now, whenever I am blessed to be able to speak at a, behind a microphone in Alcoholics Anonymous, I always tell my sponsor that I've uh, been offered a loving invitation. And Harold feels compelled after all these years to still give me some direction about how I need to conduct myself. Now, since there are people in this room who would love to report to Harold that I didn't follow his direction, and I know who you are, Roosevelt and Jasper, and also my wife, Peggy. I'm not only going to follow Harold's instruction, I'm going to tell you what he said to me. Harold always indicates that when you're invited to speak at uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, conference or otherwise, you should always thank the people who invited you to come. And you do that for two reasons. One, it's the right thing to do. But two, you want to make sure that you finger the person or persons who this doesn't go well that people can talk to afterwards. <laughs> so, uh, Dave and uh, Mike, I uh, appreciate the loving invitation. After you uh, thank uh, the people and all the rest of the committee for, the, for, for being invited, you, you, you really should make sure that you show up on time. And you do that so that they don't become disappointed in the invitation. And so Peggy and I uh, came down and we made it here on Thursday evening for the kickoff meeting, and it was a marvelous event. And we've uh, been really set the tone and the theme for what has happened here this weekend. Um, for those of us who've been blessed to serve in uh, conference chair capacities, and I had my shot at it as well as Peg. When you see an operation like this, and Robert talked about it, how smooth it works, it looks, it's kind of like uh, Tammy was describing Friday in her talk with the ducks. When you see ducks on the pond at the zoo, it looks fairly serene on the surface. But underneath, they're just peddling their legs away. To keep, and that's what happens at one of these events. So I want to thank the committee once again for that. <laughs> Harold indicates that I'm supposed to share my experiences and not my opinions because it's many of my opinions that got me my membership in Alcoholics <laughs> and I. So... If I get close to an opinion, I expect people to honor you off track. 
from what I've been able to witness since Thursday and, and Friday with Tammy and Robert, Don and Andrea, the Al-Anon speaker, uh, this has become for 44 years somebody's spiritual home. And I want to honor that. And I need to tell you that it's, cursing is not a sign of spiritual growth. And so if my language gets too salty and too close to the line, this is where I need your help. If it does, everybody in this room should give me some loving appraisal before I'm able to get out of that door and back to Baltimore. Now that's the commercial, okay? <laughs> Tell Harold I got it. <laughs> I was brought back to Alcoholics Anonymous on June the 20th of 1982. That's my sobriety day. Now, the reason I share it in that fashion is because my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting was in 1977. In 1977, I was 25 years of age. And I was working for one of the major banks in downtown Baltimore. And I did not think that anything that was happening in Alcoholics Anonymous had anything to do with a hip and cool guy like me. I had been working at this depository since uh, leaving college in Atlanta in early 70s, and um, 73 in fact. And, and my friend Michael and I, uh, every day at lunchtime, while other bankers went to get a sandwich or to see clients, or to conduct business, Michael and I would go drinking. Now, if you would have asked me in those days which one of the two of us were alcoholic, I would have pointed to my friend Michael. And the reason I would have pointed to Michael is because of the way Michael drank. Every day at lunchtime, dressed like this, my friend Michael would get a pint of Mad Dog 2020 and drink it right out of the paper bag. I, on the other hand, thank you. I'll start over. My name is Arnold. No, thank you. I, on the other hand, would join my friend Michael and I would get a pint of Calvert Extra and a lily cup and some ice. Because I had seen James Cagney and Sidney Poitier and the other guys drink on TV, and nobody was drinking out of a paper bag. <laughs> Life has a way of coming along, as it does for alcoholics of my ilk. And um, one morning several years later, we were working in cubicles in those days, and the phone rang on Michael's desk. He's one cubicle over. I heard the phone. I heard him answer it. And I heard this woman on the line from per personnel, and she was inviting my friend Michael down to her office to talk about his drinking. 
And it was the funniest thing I had heard all morning. And I continued to laugh until the phone on my desk rang. (laughs) Answered it, it was her. And she was asking me to accompany Michael down to her office. Well, I made sure that uh, Michael went in first. And uh, I sat outside and I pinned my ear to the listening post to hear the conversation. And I heard her say to my friend Michael that the bank was no longer prepared to tolerate his drinking, and they had made arrangements to send him someplace. And with that, she stopped and she said, "Uh, Mr. Ross, should you come in? And I went in and she said, "Um, would you be so kind as to take your friend Michael to treatment? And I said, of course, he's an alcoholic. That's where he belongs. (laughs) I got Michael in the car, and we drove up north of Baltimore to Belair, Maryland, to a place called Hiddenbrook. It's now closed. And they had a circular driveway, and I remember... I don't think I stopped the car. I think I slowed it down long enough to toss his suitcase up on the curb and to, like Harold gives me, give him some direction. And I said to my friend Michael, since you no longer can drink like a man, go in there and get it fixed. Am I doing this wrong? No, you're good. Okay. Me, me and you were the My friend Michael was blessed during that 30-day period to have people like yourselves, people who have home groups, people who take commitments into treatment centers, jails, or wherever people can't come to us. And Michael heard the good news. And Michael came back to work after 30 days, and he was sober. And he wanted to see his friend Arnold sober. And he was worse than any newcomer you've ever seen. (laughs) Every afternoon around 20 after 4, he would lean into my cubicle and say something sickening like, Arnold, I love you, man and your drinking is killing you, I'm going to an AA meeting. Why don't you come and go with me? And I would say back to my friend Michael, you've been a little tight with this AA thing lately. I'm heading down to the Calvert House to do some serious drinking. Why don't you come and go with me? But Michael wasn't going to stop, and I knew he wasn't. And so one afternoon in 1977, Michael and I went to uh, I went to my first AA meeting. Now, Peggy and I just retired uh, end of last year. And, and, and during our time in working in downtown Baltimore, we used to ride downtown together. And as you get uh, down on Cathedral Street, uh, past the Basilica and the library, on the left-hand side, there's an orange door that we would pass every morning. And that's where the 309 Cathedral Street group met. 
And that was my first meeting of alcohol. I used to smile at that door lovingly. But that afternoon when Michael and I got there, um, there was a desk up front and a guy was sitting behind it. His name was Willie. And there was an aisle down the center and on one side of the room, people looked like you guys. They were sitting up, sobered up, going up. Michael sat with them. On the other side of the room, however, people were drunk up, throwing up, cutting up, and I sat with my people. <laughs> I managed to get that loser's chair. You know that one that's all the way in the back of the room? where you got kind of like one foot in and one foot out. And I made a decision that I wasn't going to listen to nothing that was being said. But Willie mentioned that if you had questions, he would answer them after the meeting. I did hear that piece. And it was a discussion meeting, and uh, I remember people going around talking, and there was some old timers there. There was one woman who said she had six months, and I thought, come on, man. <laughs> and she talked, and she passed to a guy who claimed he had two and a half years, and I almost broke out laughing, like, why? <laughs> but I noticed that everybody who was getting called on was placing a high price and a premium on not drinking. So after the meeting, I started up front to see that guy, Willie, because I had some questions by this time. And Willie saw me coming, and he came around the desk, and he met me halfway, and, and, and he put his hand out. And, um, you know, when you're drinking drunk like me, you don't square off. You got to give him to the side, like, hey. Um, and so... Um, If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, saw, I was at the countdown, and I know some people here are new. If you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're trying to act like you're not new, you can stop it. We know you're new. <laughs> Willie knew I was new. Willie was one of those old-time 12-step guys where he didn't waste a lot of time asking me questions about things he knew I was well defended against and would lie about. Like, how much do you drink? Couple of beers. He didn't bother that. He wasn't going that route. He uh, didn't ask me if I had a problem with booze. He wasn't going that route. Willie asked me if I was new. And I remember saying to myself, I don't have a sign on. How does he know? Ladies, if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and have on a gown, Tiffany jewelry, or a gentleman, if you have on a necktie, 500 bucks, or a $1,000 suit, we don't see any of that. When we look in your eye sockets and don't see anybody home, that's how we know. <laughs> that's how I looked to Willie. And Willie laid the question on me, Tammy. He laid it on me. Young man, can you tell me the last day that you lived on planet Earth? 
<laughs> when you did not take a drink of alcohol? But that's a question. Ron, that's some inventory. I walked back in my life to find that day. I found that day in my teens. I was 25 at the time. And it was that day that I learned what we've all known and that there are two parts to the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a powerlessness part and an unmanageability part. In 1977, I knew I was powerless. I was going to leave and go drink. I knew it. It took five years of living in the dash of the first step to attach that to an unmanageable life. Now, we probably could get a real good discussion meeting up if we had everybody had to share about that. How long did you live in the day? Well, when you chair the next meeting, that's your topic. I got this one. Okay? <laughs> we ain't talking about that. Later on, my friend Michael decided to join that home group. He asked Willie to be his sponsor. Willie got Michael a basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous. They got in the third edition book. Michael and Willie began reading that book. And when Michael and Willie got to page 96, Michael stopped asking me to go to Aiden. Some interesting language on page 96 of that book. It talks about the fact that if you're working with someone and they don't seem to want what you have, you need to let them go. You need to abort your evangelical stage <laughs> with them. Michael stopped asking. But down the bottom of that page, there's also this interesting language about how to work with that, that alcoholic's family and don't miss that opportunity. And my friend Michael, unbeknownst to me, on a regular basis, would go over to my parents, Lord and Carrie Ross's house, and take them to some open AA meetings and some Al-Anon meetings so that on the day that their son might need this, they would know what to do. That day came. I'm not going to give you uh, a drink by drinker. I will give you some highlights. And, and I was sharing last night at dinner with uh, Mike and Kelly that when Arnold tells this story, I have to tell it about wives in rotation because I'm on number three. I got a call from personnel in the late 70s. They didn't, she didn't ask Michael to come down, just Arnold this time. And by this time, uh, Arnold had risen, stock had risen at the bank, and, and I was an officer. We had gotten to the assistant vice president level of the depository, and uh, when I got to her office, she said, you know, Mr. Ross, we need you to seek help or seek employment elsewhere. 
Now, if I were to ask the question of this assemblage, how many of you have home groups, every hand would go up. I know it. And if I followed that up with, in your home group, do you have business meetings? Probably every hand would go up. Which means that if you're involved in the home group process, you understand that the 12 spiritual principles that are in play there are the traditions, not necessarily the steps. And so what I didn't understand was that when you're involved in a marriage, that's a group. And the common welfare of that group has to come first. And I probably should have said, excuse me, I need to use a phone Mrs. Ross number one and ask her what I need to do. But I didn't do that. What I saw was right to drink back in Korea. And so when I got home to share with Mrs. Ross number one, Sharon about the marvelous decision I had made for our lives, she was not enthused. <laughs> now this is where the experience piece comes into the talk. In the state of Maryland, if you dissolve a marriage, you divide all the assets in half. That's what happened to me. Sharon got inside. I got outside. <laughs> That's half. How do you problem with that? Now you would have thought that would have been enough to get me to quit drinking, but it was. And I ran, I remember that at AA meetings, they would listen to people like me who would have issues. And I went to the meeting and I told them about that. And the people there did something for me that we do all the time in here. They put the issue to the side. They put their arm around your shoulder and they walk you over to the coffee pot and tell you that lie. It's now, it's not really a lie. It's only a lie if you're not going to quit drinking. And the lie is, it's going to be all right. I wasn't ready to quit because it wasn't going to be all right. The last day I drank was June 19th of 1982. And by this time, my life had uh, tumbled to the place where, and we heard Don last night talk about uh, what real alcoholics were and all. Uh, by th their characteristics that I had that I think qualify for me in stage. By this time, I was living on the 39th floor of a high rise in downtown Baltimore. And I had developed some characteristics, and one of them of my you need to have if you're going to drink like I drank is you cannot be afraid of a window envelope with the bill in it. You're not going to pay it, so you just toss it in a cardboard box with the rest of it. Don't fear of economic insecurity is not your issue at that point. The second skill you have to have is you need to be able to sit in your apartment on the 39th floor of a building and clutch a scotch glass so closely to your body that the ice doesn't hit the side so that people, when they knock on the door, don't think that you're in the apartment. Because people don't come up 39 flights unless they really want to talk to you, and it's usually not going to be good. 
But the greatest skill of all, and probably the one that saved this alcoholic's life, is to be able to listen to a ringing telephone and determine whether it's a good call or a bad. <laughs> you mess that up, you'll get a bill collector. Or you might get your mom and dad or whatever. And this Saturday morning about, I guess it was 10 of 10 thereabouts, the phone rang and I took a shot and it was my father on the phone. My father and I had not talked since a month earlier when he had to ask me to leave for Mother's Day dinner for my mom. My mother, he said that my mother could not stand to see me watch this way, so I was not welcome to dinner. But what he did was he took away my resentment of him he said, Arnold, come round back and I'll sneak you a plate. And we, when I went around back, he gave me a plate. We sat in the basement. Once I finished eating it, he took the plate and he says, you got to leave. But this morning, I answered the phone and it was him. And he said that um, the next day was his birthday. And it was also Father's Day at church. And he was hopeful that I would be so inclined to attend church with, with him and my mom. And I said, of course. Now, as I look back at that phone call, and I look back at what my friend Michael had been doing for my parents, and I match that up with the doctor's opinion of our basic text, my father shouldn't have even bothered to ask me that question. He knew I wasn't going to be there. Book talks about a fact that there was to be a businessman, that there was to be a deal settled favorably to him the next day, and he didn't get that because he drank. That's in the doctor's opinion. If he had been going to meetings and reading that book, he'd have known that. He wouldn't ask me that question. So that's Saturday night. With that on my mind, church the next day, I went out to do what I usually did on Saturday nights. That's when your serious drinking starts. And I went to this place in Baltimore at the corner of Park and Franklin. It's no longer there. It's now it's a parking lot. It was called the Jazz Closet. And they played straight-ahead jazz music, the kind that I like, the Coltrane, the Miles Davis stuff. Now, if, 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 if you like Grover Washington and Kenny G, that's okay. They don't play enough notes for me. But I was in there, and I had a scotch, and I'm listening to the music. I'm into it. And I don't know about anybody in this room, but I had blackouts when they first came out. And all of a sudden, <laughs> my shades went down, and when they came back up, I wasn't listening to jazz music. I wasn't even in the closet. I was in Southeast Baltimore at Turkey Joe Travers with a beer mug in my hand and there's bluegrass on stage and I'm in mid-sentence. But if you drink the way I drank, you don't let on that you don't know how you get from one place to the next. You go with the bit. The next memory I have of that night of being on the west side of Baltimore at 
uh, no fish today, drinking green cream de mint. Ooh, it's free. <laughs> I must have had been there a long time because I remember going to the men's room, my lips and tongue were green. That's how much I can get down. <laughs> The next conscious memory I have is the next morning. We were asked a question last night about any of us ever had, had handcuffs on. I came to that Sunday morning lying on the concrete floor of the Baltimore City Jail. And if you've ever been in a drunk tank, they throw you up in there in a pile. Some of that urine may have been my own. Who knows? <laughs> but the serenade was, Arnold Ross, you made bail. And I stood up, and I walked out of the cell, and I looked down a tear, and there stood my mom and dad, and my friend Michael. And my gift to my father on Father's Day of 1982 was to come and bail his son out of jail. Now, I wouldn't change a thing. I let it play the way it played to get here with you this morning. We walked out on Baltimore Street, made a right on Gay. It was a warm summer humid Baltimore day. <clears throat> when you breathe, you press by. Now, I don't look like a shrinking violet kind of guy to you. I'm not one of those. But this morning, my bag of tricks was empty. I had nothing to say to these people. We got in the car and we drove up Gay Street a little ways. My dad was doing the drive, but I was in shotgun, and my mom and Mike were in the back, and my father pulled in to this gravel parking lot, and he said, get out of the car, boy, and I thought he wanted to fight. <laughs> Isn't that what gravel parking lots are for? <laughs> and fighting is okay by this time with a guy like me, except for I need to have something in me. You know what I'm saying? Preferably vodka. Because you're going to fight, you need to be mean. And vodka makes this guy mean. But he didn't want to fight. We, we got out of the car, and he walked, and I stumbled behind him over this gravel parking lot to a building with the sun shining on it that was purple. And purple was not the color when you got it. We walked up, and, and my father rang the doorbell, and the door opened up. And in this little alcove was Dave McQuaid, God rest his soul, Marjorie, Charlie Mullen, Arthur. And my father said, as he pushed me in the back across this door sill, maybe you people can help my son because we are out of answers. And he turned and left. And in this small alcove at 1846 North Gay Street, which is no longer there, and um, Hopkins ARU, these four individuals loved a guy who they didn't even know enough to 
shared their stories with me so that I could identify in the Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 30 years old. Marjorie said to me, Arnold, I've never seen anyone too dumb to get this thing. I've seen guys like you that are too smart to usually end up dead or in jail. I just left the lockup. Is there a casket around the corner or something? These people look to be 90 years old apiece. I'm 30. So I pose a question. You know me. Question. And uh, I pose the question. Excuse me. Um, how is it that if you are going to live and I'm almost 90 and I'm going to die, how does that work? And they had this raggedy shade with 12 spiritual exercises on it and pointed to it. They said, that's why we're going to live. We hope maybe you might help us. They gave me something to say and to go off and get on my knees to say it. And I assume everybody starts their recovery same place. God help me, I'm a drunk. Isn't that how the prayer goes? Well, I went to this room, and let me just tell y'all a little some things about Because, see, the Arnold story doesn't start in 1977 or 1982. None of our stories start at the sobriety date. I think that Ron made that perfectly clear yesterday afternoon. The Arnold Ross story starts... In June of 1944, which happens to be the same month that the Grapevine published its first publication. Story starts in Durham, North Carolina with a young man named Lloyd Ross. June 44, he's sitting on stage at high school getting ready to graduate. He looks out there and sees Carrie Wooten, my mom, and he likes it. My father knew nothing about Bill Wilson or the grapevine being published. None of us knew that there was this parallel track bus going on. Nineteen forty-eight, he finally convinces Carrie they ought to get married. It's interesting. 1951 in April was the first general service conference. I was conceived in March and born in December of 1951. December the 15th, my father and the doctor had a dilemma. You see, my mother had been tagging, dragging around a ten and a half pound baby boy. Now I know that's not big for up here in Virginia Beach, but in Durham, that's pretty good size. They had to make a decision whether one of us are going to make it, two of us are going to make it, and if both of us make it, this the only kid y'all ever going to have. And they took a shot. 
And every day that I can remember growing up in the, the Lord and Carol's household, I was told that they loved me. And I can remember, you know, 1953, when your 12 and 12 was published, first one. I was two years old. I had been told that we love you and one day you're going to grow up and be somebody a million times. By 1957, I was six years old. You guys were getting the AA comes of age. And I'd heard this so many times that you're going to grow up and be somebody. I felt that maybe, just maybe, by, I ain't going to be nobody right now if I'm going to grow up and be somebody. <laughs> Why do I have to wait? Nobody ever said it to me. That's how I thought and hadn't drank a thing. By this time, my grandmother had been dragging me to the Mount Gilead Baptist Church every time it was over. <laughs> we passed there one Wednesday. They were putting down carpet. We went in because it was over. <laughs> I sat on them pews with my grandmother every Sunday, and she was not, you know, speaking in tongues. And, and man, I didn't get nothing out of that except for if I ever get away from them. So God help me, I'm a drunk. Years later, I already knew that, that there was a God. Somebody put the sun out in the morning, took it down at night. But I thought the stuff in between was on me to figure out. And this is what I had done with my life. I had graduated from two different degrees. And here I am standing here with God help me, I'm a drunk. And here's what I said. I leaned over. I didn't even kneel down. To whom it may concern. <laughs> God help me, I'm a drunk. And I went back downstairs and I told them I had done it. And they said, we're going to have an AA meeting. And they said, I said, fine. And I stepped in to get a cup of coffee at that AA meeting on my first day in treatment. This gentleman stepped in next to me and he said, my name is Wayne and I'm going to be your sponsor because you're too stupid to get one. <laughs> As I look back at that, I realized everything had happened. I just didn't know it at the time. During my last day's drinking, before my father called me, I drank at a place called the 203 in downtown Baltimore. When you went in 203, there was a guy at the door, and he would ask you, do you have a gun? And if you said no, he says, look, while you're in here, you use mine. Give me back when you leave. <laughs> I don't put up with people talking to me like, you're too stupid to get one. I don't put up with that. But I found myself saying to this gentleman, Wayne, thank you, okay. <laughs> Wayne brought his sponsor, Richard, to the party. And Richard and Wayne began to do for me what I could not do for myself. Arnold, we're going to pick you up for the AA meeting, be on the corner. Be on the corner at 7, Arnold. 
And if I was on the corner at 705, they drove by. Seven is seven, not 705. Wayne and Richard got to wear tank tops to the meeting, not Arnold. Got to put on a shirt. They took me to meetings that I would not normally choose for myself. They took me to meetings, and and and, and Michael's back there. He's laughing, and so is Jasper. And when I say this, they're going to understand. The meetings they took me to were for newcomers for who were whining and sniveling. <laughs> And I was one of the chief whiners and snivelers, so I, I wasn't getting along too well. And they took me over to Claver Group, which was Richard's home group, and they would have at me. They would have their way. And I remember one night, they never let me drive. Wayne did the driving. And so we left the meeting, and we were in the dark in the parking lot, and Wayne was getting ready to start the car, and I said, I said, Wayne, you need to tell them that uh, this isn't going real well and that I'm really sensitive and they're hurting my feelings. <laughs> and I could see the light from the street light on Wayne's face and this muscle is jumping. But he didn't say anything. So I assumed that he didn't hear me. So I repeated myself. I can't tell you what Wayne said to me. <laughs> if I told you what Wayne said, I would never speak at another meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous Conference again. Because he cursed. Had something to do with selfish, self-centered, SOB, you know, M I mean, all those those initials. He dropped me off at home. We drove about three miles in silence. He never said another word all night. We got in front of the car. He didn't say goodbye. You know, I got out. Wayne went on home, and I stood up. I was up all night. And I was really disturbed that I had done it this time, that I had, I had run them all. And I decided that night that whatever it, they needed me to do, I was going to do. I was coming to believe at that point. I still wasn't that good at home because by this time I had married Mrs. Ross number two. Mrs. Ross number two came with a daughter, Dale. And uh, Dale was a loving child, still is. Dale would meet me at the front door every afternoon with her arms out looking for a hug. But I was so afraid of this 11-year-old daughter that I'd make sure I'd have a raincoat briefcase, <laughs> hands be full, you know. And then finally at the men's meeting, I asked, I said, guys, I'm, this is a, what am I going to do? She won't stop. And somebody said, why don't you just hug that little girl? Novel idea. <laughs> We've been hugging ever since. When you don't know, you don't know. 
I had begun to issue direction to Mrs. Ross number two. Tonight, when I get home from the office, I like to have some French cut string beans, steak, you know, menu planning. And I was coming home to eat beans. Anger is the dubious luxury of normal people, is what the text says. What that translates to me is, Mrs. Ross, number two, you made a mistake, but I overlook it. Now, tomorrow, French cut... After about three or four weeks of that, um, <laughs> Terry decided that she had had enough, and she said, Arnold, if you think people are going to bow down and bathe you in swaddling clothes for getting sober, I suggest you go get drunk, and here's a fiver to get you started. Yeah, you got to call your sponsor for that. you got to call your sponsor. So I called Wayne, and um, Wayne said to me, what step are you working? I said, never mind that step stuff. I got a situation. <laughs> so I started the story over again. He said, Arnold, I heard the story the first time. Come down here. I want to talk to you. When you get to your sponsor's apartment and he's sitting on the couch with his big book open to a page, that's pretty frightening. <laughs> At the other end of the couch is uh, Wayne's sponsor, Richard. His book is over to the same page. Now I feel threatened. <laughs> it was that night that I was able to get on my knees and hold two other gentlemen's hands and say, God, I offer myself to you. Richard said after I said it, you seem to be a little nervous about saying that. I said, well, you, you know, Richard, it really appears as if, as we read this, that God gets to do everything. <laughs> I don't get to do nothing. He said, Arnold, I hate to tell you this, but God's been doing it all along. Nineteen eighty-four. I was two years sober, and we had a business meeting. I'm a member of the Welcome Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet in Baltimore, seven o'clock on Saturday nights, and I don't know what they did for coffee. Cause the coffee makers here today, last night, Thank Roosevelt. They're gonna be talking to you next Saturday. Um, it's a speakers meeting, so that's an invitation. If you come, you don't get to, to talk. There's only one person talking, and they only have three topics. What they were like. We don't care about it in our home group. It was always fine. What they were like, what happened, and what they're like. They leave it behind, and we tell them. We don't hear about it. They had a business meeting, and I remember going to the bathroom, and I came back GSR. <laughs> I'm thinking that's how to get elected. And um, I looked around the room and I thought, yeah, I'm the best guy for that in here. So my first area assembly was in 1984-84 in Area 29, like everybody else was having the court slip battle. Do we sign them? Do we not? And um, 
we did some pretty good debating, i.e. arguing at each other that morning. And then everybody split when got coffee and everybody was all friends and we came back, we went on shop. I thought, man, this is this what I like this. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna thrive in this. Nineteen eighty four was the year that uh, Mel finished writing Pass It On and it was gonna be the handout in Montreal at the International and uh, it's my first international. It was the first time I got the opportunity to stand in a stadium and hold hands with 50,000 people and say the Lord's Prayer, and that puts a, some starch into you. Into you. By 1990, you didn't have to tell me about Seattle because I was going to be there. I wanted to go. I wanted to be at the International. I was there in 95 in San Diego. And in 95, Wayne started to get ill and uh, I was the area chair of our area in 95. Things are going really good at home. Things are going really well at the office. Got elected delegate in 96, went to my first general service conference. There was some talk about having a fourth edition big book, and I told him I was against it. I wasn't interested in the fourth edition big book. I got sober on the third. You know, it's me, selfish and self-centered. There's some language in the third edition book that um, I've always held near and dear to my heart, and I didn't want to see that language eliminated. It's the last paragraph at the bottom of the forward to the third edition, where it says there that in spite of the great expanse of our fellowship at its core, it remains simple and personal. Each day recovery begins when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. And that's what's supposed to be happening when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. One alcoholic and I thought if we lost that language, we'd lose our fellowship. Well, as it turns out, God of my understanding has a sense of humor. Even though I thought it was a bad idea for a fourth edition book, everybody else thought it was, and we got one. In 1997, I was at the General Service Conference. In April, the book was approved. My sponsor, Wayne, died first week in June of 1997. I remember they had a Northeast Regional Forum the end of June. And I was to give a talk on how to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, for all you scholarly types, it's on page 93 at the very top. Have at it this afternoon. When you do what you want to read it, go read it. I'm not going to tell you what's there. But it was difficult for me to do that knowing that my sponsor had left me after 15 years. And so after I gave the talk, I went over to get a cup of coffee, and this guy stood in next to me, and he said, my name is Harold, and I'm going to be your sponsor because you're too stupid to get one. <laughs> 
Well, you know, we laugh at that because the joke's on her. i tell you why. I wear sponsors out after 15 years. <laughs> Harold's on borrowed time. <laughs> and I share that only because at the end of this month, we're going to have Harold's 50th anniversary celebration. <laughs> well, let me rephrase that because he's going to hear this. He's going to hear this on tapes. I might as well just say it. Harold got sober in a leap year. <laughs> Since that only comes every four, maybe it's not quite. Y'all are telling myself. <laughs> in 2000, as Michael mentioned, I was asked to speak at the International Convention. And that's no different than speaking here this morning. We carried a message. It doesn't make any difference. One at a time, two at a time, three at a time, 65,000. Doesn't make difference. Message is the message. Arnold's not the message. Arnold does not speak to Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody does. The only thing we're trying to accomplish is to stop drinking and be, be sober and to be useful. In 2000, I was asked to serve on your A Grapevine board. And it was extremely interesting for me because the God of my understanding has a sense of humor because I didn't want a fourth edition book. I was at the conference when they came off the presses and somebody gave me one of the first couple in 2001. Joke's on me, right? 2004 we were able to get your A Grapevine archives up so that anybody can see any article from back from 1944 to the present. There are about 16,000 articles up on the website, and we were able to do that as a board on behalf of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You can hear all of these stories. And we hope that you will write some and get published. After a weekend kind of like this in 2000, I came home. I got home and um, Mrs. Ross, number two, indicated to me that she needed to chat. My Mrs. Ross, number two, had been going to Avalon all these years. and She indicated to me that she had been waiting for 18, 19 years for the old Arnold to come back. And she recognized that old Arnold couldn't come back and that she did not want to be married any longer. And it's been my experience that in the state of Maryland, when you dissolve a marriage, <laughs> once again, I got outside. That's okay. Because the good news about being an Alcoholics Anonymous is that nobody lives happily ever after. Bell curve works for everybody. It's only when you're flatlined that you can't be helped. I turn myself into Alcoholics Anonymous. See, I don't have to come here like I do the work prepared. I just bring my alcoholism, and you people assist me. Well, right after the divorce in 2001, I went on this big dating spree. 
That's right. I got back out there. I dated three women. And only one of them more than once, and I'm married to her today. <laughs> My wife just celebrated 33 years of continuous sobriety. In our home, it's getting close to time. In our home, we work with all three sides of the triangle so we can get our circle connected. We work on the steps so that we don't ever want to commit suicide on each other, on, on ourselves, so that the other person has to clean that mess up. Steps are for the recovery so that you don't have to stop the suicide. We find ourselves more that we after we get sober being in groups of people. So the 12 exercises for those are the traditions. And the traditions are there so that we don't commit homicide. We don't kill the other people. Don't kill ourselves, don't kill the other people. 12 concepts of service are designed so that you don't commit Genocide. You don't kill the other servants. And that's important because the servants are few. How often have we heard someone say that 10% of the people in AA do 100% of the work? Raise your hands if you heard that. Okay. That's not, that's not true, by the way. I can prove to you that's not true. Every year after the conference, there's a final conference report that comes out. And in the final conference report, it shares how much literature was sold the previous year. Usually on balance, every year, our fellowship sells a million big books. That's right. And we only got two million members. We got about 50 million books in circulation. That means that everybody in this room got 20 books at home, right? <laughs> of course not. On an annual basis, if that's the recovery tool, on the annual basis, we sell around 800 or so thousand of 12 and 12. Okay? And we sell less than 25,000 service magnets. So I look at that as only 2% of us are doing 100% of the work. And all I want to do is get the other eight, John, to come join us and help us. I ain't looking for 900 million. I'm looking for 10. I want to get from 2 to 10. Forget about the other 90 Services isn't for everybody, and I understand that. As I close this morning, I want to share with you this. In Alcoholics Anonymous, there are five things that are essential for you to stay sober.
And these five things are things that only you can give you. Only you can give you a sobriety date. I'd love to give you one, but I can't. I only got mine. Only you can give you a sponsor. It's the sponsor of your choice, so you have to choose it. Only you can give you a home group. You're welcome at the welcome group, but it's going to be a heck of a commute for you all the way to Baltimore every Saturday night. Only you can give you a service position in that home group. That's four. But only you can give you the God of your understanding. And that's the essential five gifts that you get to give yourself in Alcoholics Anonymous. Peggy and I retired, as I said, into December. And I didn't retire to take on another job, but uh, in the retirement phase of this, uh, my father died November the 15th, 19, 2018. Thank you, Peggy. My mother, my father was 93 years old, and the last day he was on the planet, I said to him that if he needed to go home, go ahead, I'll take care of mama. I got this. And my father, in 67 years of us being son and father, he never did anything I asked him. That night he did. He went. <clears throat> but I've seen a lot of you lose your fathers, and I've watched you put your feet in ruts that I've been allowed to put my feet in, and hopefully people coming behind me who I sponsor will put their feet in them. But after a year and two months of fighting the battle, my mother at 90 years old decided that she wanted to go be with him and so she went. On June the 20th, right about 10 of 8, we got the call that my mom had passed. January. Sorry. Thank you. The general's wife is the general's general. Remember that. <laughs> that same morning, um, last year I couldn't come because of my mom. And Michael in the back was kind enough to lead the meeting on my behalf. That morning at 435, Michael's mother Mary transitioned to life after life. And on Mary's way, she came by and got Carrie, Mike. And they went on. Because they knew that we were going to be okay. Because now we have a family, not by birth, but by choice. I never had no brothers and sisters. You guys are it. And I'm sticking with you. My name is Arnold. I'm still alcoholic.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.